0: It's Tuesday, September the 26th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Fighting Blindness Canada is hosting their Viewpoint Conference and Young Leaders Summit very soon. Morgan Ineson fills you in on the details. Legal reform is part of the bigger truth and reconciliation picture. Kelly Bron johnson discusses how Gladue reports acknowledge the effects of colonialism on Indigenous people. And the Blue Pumpkin and Bucket campaign is aiming to make trick-or-treating more inclusive to children with disabilities. Rebecca Dingwell explains how you can join in on this movement. But the show begins with the top story of the day. And all these stories are essentially about money and the economy. Sort of like your pocketbook, but uh, maybe a little bit more broadly into the macroeconomic picture. Canada's largest private sector union is set to begin negotiations today with General Motors. Emily Jovesky has more.
1: Workers at Ford voted 54% in favor of a new three-year collective agreement over the weekend. Union President Lana Payne says the Ford deal will set the pattern for contract talks at General Motors and Stellantis. Just as we had with Ford Motor Company, we hold a lot of negotiating leverage with GM right now. But the narrow vote of support by Unifor members has experts saying that reaching deals with the two automakers could prove more challenging. Unifor's associations with GM cover approximately 4300 workers at its facilities in St. Catharines, Oshawa and Woodstock, Ontario. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press, Toronto.
0: Of course there's an American side to any conversations about the auto workers and labor deals. US President Joe Biden is traveling to Michigan to join a United Auto Workers picket line. Karen Travers has that element of the story.
1: The White House says President Biden wants to be the most pro-union president in history, and today he'll show his support in person to UAW auto workers on strike in Michigan. It's an historic move by Mr. Biden, thought to be the first time that a sitting president joins a union picket line. On Monday, he told reporters auto workers gave up a, quote, incredible amount when the auto industry was failing, and they should now reap the rewards of the turnaround. Take a look at the significant increase in Salaries for executives and growth in the industry, they should benefit from it. Karen Travers, ABC News, Washington.
0: And one more side of the auto story. Ford is halting construction of a Michigan battery plant. Ben Thomas takes a closer look.
2: Ford Motor Company says it's pausing construction of the $3.5 billion electric vehicle battery plant in Marshall, Michigan, until it's confident it can run the factory competitively. The move comes in the midst of contract talks with the United Auto Workers Union. Ford's plans envision the plant employing about 2,500 workers. UAW President Sean Fain called the move a shameful, barely-veiled threat to cut jobs. But a Ford spokesman says there are a number of considerations. There has been local opposition to the factory location and criticism of a Chinese company's involvement. I'm Ben Thomas.
0: Coming back to Canada, the Canada Energy Regulator has approved Trans Mountain's application to modify their pipeline's route. Bill Graveland explains. The Crown Corporation that owns the pipeline project had requested permission to alter the route slightly for a 1.3-kilometer stretch of pipe
2: in the Jacko Lake area near Kamloops. The move was opposed by the local First Nation, which had only agreed to the original route. Trans Mountain said it had run into engineering difficulties in the area related to the construction of a tunnel, and without the change, would face delays at another $86 million on its final
0: price tag. Bill Graveland the Canadian press and one more story for you and this comes from the housing file a Toronto-based real estate company says it is planning to build 5,000 new rental units across the country as a result of the federal government's policy to eliminate GST charges on rental development Canadian press reporter John Kennedy has the story
3: The CEO of Dream Unlimited Corporation, Michael Cooper, says high interest rates and construction costs had put many projects on pause, but the federal government's announcement that it would eliminate GST charges off of rental developments, and the expectation that the provinces would follow suit,
1: has changed the calculation for Dream. Finance Minister Christia Freeland introduced legislation last week that would cut GST off the rental developments that are built. The measure has also been called for by housing experts, advocates, and developers who say more incentives are needed to spur purpose-built housing rental.
0: That's your look at the news Here come the daily polls At Accessible Media is where you can vote on Twitter At Accessible Media Inc. is where you can vote on Facebook On Monday you were asked How have change in economic conditions affected your thoughts on organized labor and unions? 0% of you said positively 50% of you said negatively And 50% of you said they haven't You've really got to get engaged in these polls on the daily, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc on Facebook, so your voice can be heard. Today's poll also coming from the world of economics and money. I've been sharing news updates with you about Alberta asking residents about creating their own provincial pension plan. It would involve the province leaving the Canada pension plan. So it begs this question, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, how do you feel about provinces creating their own public pension plans? Good, bad, or I don't care? I'm going to acknowledge for you this can be something of a complex question and there's some background that's relevant here. People might point to the province of Quebec and say, Dave, the province of Quebec has their own pension plan. That's right. They never opted into the CPP in the first place and decided to create their own. The conversation going on in a place like Alberta right now is about leaving the CPP. And according to the calculations uh, by Daniel Smith, their finance minister, and of course a third-party consultant, Alberta wants to take half of the CPP with them. There's probably some merit in discussing provinces having their own pension plans. It might not be a terrible idea completely, but you have to have the conversation as a grown adult. And that doesn't mean taking half the balls and going home with you and developing your own You have to think about a blending idea. You've got to think about your own funding formula. You've got to think about what you want to take out of your own residents' paychecks. It's not so simple as deciding one day, hey, in 2027, we are going to move to our own pension plan with our own model. There's probably a little bit of blending going on. And again, there's probably some merit to this. There could be some merit in provinces sort of taking care of their own. But you don't just get to go willy-nilly with these things and uh, nip away at the uh, greater good of a CPP that has been built for over 50 years across the country. Of course, the provinces also have their own track records of maybe not taking care of their own in their own particular way, not so happy to give disability payments to people, not so great at funding their own long-term care homes, not so great at funding their own hospitals. So as much as the provinces want to say, we want independence and we're going to do it right, uh, what's your track record? What is your track record, provinces? Alex Smythe, what do you think? How do you feel about provinces creating their own public pension plans?
2: Dave, you took almost all my points right out of my mouth. I mean, I was gonna say, okay, so first off, I don't feel great about it. I, I guess I would be categorized as feeling bad about it for the various reasons that you laid out in terms of what is the province's track record of taking care of their own responsibilities. And maybe this is in part due to the political landscape at the provincial level opposed to the federal level where the uh, the federal liberals are much more uh, willing to invest into different programs ensuring that there are programs like this that are well-funded whereas at the provincial level We're seeing widespread conservative governments that are looking to kind of give money back to the people directly and and not really fund these types of programs you you saw in Ontario. It's the the drive to push towards a more privatized healthcare, the long-term care issues that you had mentioned first coming to light during the pandemic, but really hasn't been resolved since not at all not at all not at all not at all and and so i i i feel like we would be kind of coming into a similar situation because you're going to have less resources in terms of uh, financial supports at the provincial level, opposed to the federal level, that's part of the reason why Danielle Smith and and her government is saying, "Yeah, we want our own, but we still want half of the CPP." Yeah, good luck trying to get half of the uh, the the funds that you contribute a fraction of uh, that half too. So, I I think that there. The provinces understand, Okay, well, there's going to be more resources available if we stay within it, but we want to have more control over it. We want to kind of divvy it up our own way. I I still like the idea of a federalized plan that covers all Canadians. Minus Quebec, because they never opted in in the
0: first place. In the first place, exactly. Sometimes you have to make these choices and say, we don't want to be a part of this at all, and we will do our own. The other thing that Alberta is maybe uh, leaving out here is that you do have to create your own infrastructure to administer this, Mm -hmm. and that costs money too. Again, when you're talking about the funding of a a pension plan, that is in theory coming off people's paychecks. So it's not quite the same way as a typical fiscal government policy. But again, the, you can make a lot of choices here about what the formula is in terms of money going out to people, in, in terms of uh, in terms of the outgoing payments to people. So th- there are some complications to this. Amanda Shikarchi, I acknowledge that uh, there's probably some significant calculus that probably goes above my head in trying to figure this out. And I, as much as I can accept the possible positives that exist here, maybe provinces creating their own smaller provincial pension plans, I don't know about standalone go it alone, tearing down the CPP.
4: Yeah, that's where I'm coming from as well, because as we were saying, it's definitely good to kind of have a united, like a unanimous kind of idea of what the plan looks like, you know, having the Canadian pension plan there, because it's kind of clear, you know, for each province, okay, this is what we need to do. But it also can, you know, get confusing if you're making a new one, just kind of this remembering the rules for all the different, you know, provinces. And, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, people who maybe move around Canada often and have to readjust to the new rules and the new regulations. However, if Coming up with a new pension plan for different provinces helps the province as a whole as a whole and is more supportive to the people than I am for it.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point as well. People are moving around this country. That's part of the freedom of movement that we're guaranteed as Canadian citizens. So what do you say to someone who got their education in Newfoundland or Labrador, which was funded by that province, and then went to Alberta to go work? Well, what was the investment that Newfoundland and Labrador made to make that person capable of working in Alberta? So certainly another reason to talk about a more nationalized system. Again, I I think this is something over the course of the next decade you're going to hear more and more about whether it's provinces downloading expenses to municipalities or the federal government's maybe getting involved in what is supposed to be provincial policy. That's what's at the heart of the Canada disability benefit. This idea of a federal policy relating to disability that actually has nothing to do with their own place in the division of powers that exists in this company. The disability file is supposed to be a provincial one, and here comes the federal government superseding. So there's always going to be this push and pull, and over the course of the next decade, I do wonder how jurisdiction is going to play out. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. That's where you can vote on the poll on social media. You can also get involved via email, feedback at AMI.ca, feedback at AMI.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call 1-866-509- 4545 one 509 45, 45, Coming up after the break, Fighting Blindness Canada is hosting a couple of events here. You've got the Viewpoint Conference and the Young Leaders Summit coming up in a couple of days and weeks, respectively. Morgan Edison will fill you in on the details. This is Now with Dave Brown on MITV. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. Fighting Blindness Canada is ramping up for two big conferences this fall. The Viewpoint Conference goes down this Saturday. The Young Leaders Summit is running next month. Morgan Ineson has all the details for you. Morgan is the Manager of Education for FBC. Hey, good morning, Morgan. Good morning, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, Great to chat with you once again. Pleasure to have you alongside to talk about these conferences. Let's be linear about this. Let's go in order. The conference uh, Viewpoint goes down this Saturday in Toronto. What's at the core of this conference?
5: So Viewpoint is a community event that's for people who are living with vision loss and their families. And at its very core, we're trying to connect people with experts in vision care. So yes, the doctors and researchers who are working in the field, but also other community organizations who provide resources and really importantly, other people who are living with vision loss to um, be able to have a conversation about what, what people are experiencing uh, you know, my perspective is that we're not here to tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do, but we want to help uh, people get all the best current and accurate information so they can make the best decisions for their own health care.
0: There's no doubt that the researchers involved with FBC are doing fantastic work, and a lot of the people who are part of the FBC community really enjoy some of the information that comes out, because it's tangible, it's useful for their lives. One of the, co- one of the aspects of the conference is going to put a focus on artificial intelligence in the medical field, especially when it comes to the aging eyes. How is AI making its way into the eye care industry?
5: Yeah, it's such a good question. It's such a hot topic right now. And Uh, I would say it's one of the sessions I'm most excited about learning, too, because it's so new. Um, We have a wonderful speaker, Dr. Sada, who's coming from the UCLA, um, and he is an expert on this new technology. So there's a few ways that we're already starting to see um, the impact of AI on eye care. Uh, One of them is around screening for eye diseases. Um, So right now it's being used around or starting to be used around uh, screening for diabetes-related eye diseases. But hopefully in the future, we'll be moving into screening for things like age-related macular degeneration and glaucoma. Uh, There's also a big interest in using AI for home monitoring. So how diagnosis and um, just keeping track of your eye condition to see if there's any changes could be happening at home instead of always having to go to an eye clinic. Um, And then there's also this idea of personalized medicine and how AI might be able to choose the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. So especially in areas where maybe you can't get to an eye doctor regularly or easily, these applications, I think, have Mm -hmm. uh, great potential for changing uh, the way that eye care is, is taken. And I'm just really excited to learn more myself because it is, again, such a new field.
0: Yeah, it's new fields and it's expert in the field. And that's one of the things that is so fantastic about a conference like this. Morgan, I know the agenda is quite packed for viewpoint. What are some of the other standout discussions or presentations that, that jump off the page for you?
5: Yeah, so we have a full program and there's something for everyone there. So we're going to be having a lot of Q&A style sessions where um, people can ask their questions directly to the the doctors. So there'll be those themed around age-related macular degeneration, glaucoma, cataracts, inherited retinal diseases. So those will be taking place as sort of breakout sessions. We also have, I'm really excited about a panel that we're running um, that it's going to be focused on... Sort of the experiences and the psychological impact of being diagnosed with an inherited retinal disease. And that is being run and moderated by four people who have an IRD. So it's really about their experiences and hopefully, um, you know, what lessons they've learned along the way. So I'm really excited about that. And we also have a closing panel uh, where we're going to be joined by two doctors who've been integral in getting the gene therapy Luxterna uh, publicly approved in Canada. This was big news this year. Mm. Um, and then, of course, we're also going to be hearing from a patient who's actually received the treatment to hear about his experience and you know how things are going now so just a full day i think really uh, a great program and I'm, i'm looking forward to hearing all the sessions
0: the countdown's on in a big way saturday just being a few days away uh is it too late for somebody to get engaged is it too late for someone to get involved what are the points of contact
5: No, absolutely. We would love for more people to come and join us. As you mentioned, it's happening this Saturday, September 30th at the Novotel Toronto, North York, which is very conveniently located at the North York Centre Subway Station. And people can register by visiting us at fightingblindness.ca slash viewpoint. You can send me an email at education at fightingblindness.ca, or you can give us a call at 416-360-4200.
0: After this Saturday, you and your colleagues get to take basically uh, one day of a breath before the run-up to the next big event kicks in. The uh, Young Leaders Summit or or the Youth Summit taking place on October 14th and 15th, also in the Toronto area. But again, this one's a little bit different. What makes this such a standout event, the Young Leaders Summit?
5: Oh my goodness, so many reasons. So firstly, this program is open to youth from across the country. So we are very fortunate. We have funding to help bring people in from coast to coast to coast. Um, We also, um, I think, are quite unique in the fact that this program is very participatory in nature. So it's co-led by a panel of young people who are living with vision loss. Um, They decide on the sessions, the speakers, and the content. Uh, I personally might youth whatever that means was a few years ago so <laughs> i want to make sure that this program is really relevant to to young people today Uh, And I think also the summit just includes so many opportunities to connect with others, to share your experience, to feel part of a community. And I think that's what makes this program so special.
0: Morgan, you and I are aligned. Although I'm not a young person, technically, I still feel young in my brain. So I still feel some association here because I don't want to grow up, even though I rapidly approach 40 years old over here. Uh, Morgan, this one has a real social element to it. Why that focus?
5: I think it's so important. You know, I've worked in this area with youth with visionless for a really long time. I used to work at, I, back in the day, I was at the SCORE program at CNIB. And I think that one thing I've really learned about talking to young people over the past <clears throat> 15 plus years is that many of them have not had the experience of meeting other uh, kids who are visually impaired. And this is one of their first opportunities to have, to be in a room to not feel like you're an outsider at all, to be included and to know that everyone in the room, to some extent, understands what you're going through. And it's, it's just a really, I think there's some magic that happens there when, when people get together and get to feel included and everything's accessible to them.
0: Shared experience means a lot, and when you can have those experiences and build relationships with a national focus, it can go a long, long way. And means, hey, you might have places to visit and friends to visit on vacation later in life as well, which uh, is pretty cool as well. So, uh, Morgan, I don't know if this is actually a sales pitch or something that people will be interested in, but I will be a part of the festivities. I'll be doing a presentation, a speech, which is super cool, but I don't think I'm the big selling point. Who else is making an appearance?
5: I don't know, Dave, you're a pretty big selling point. Everyone has been okay. very excited. when We let them know you're
0: going um, to boosting, You're boosting my ego here, Morgan. I don't know about <laughs> that. We don't need that around here.
5: <laughs> so yeah, so we're so excited. Dave's going to be there on Saturday. We also have on Sunday, uh, another keynote, uh, Joe Stretche, who's a film and television producer working out of the States. Um, most notably, or not well, most notably, but notably, he worked on the Apple Plus uh, TV show, C, um, which we know um, employed a lot of people who are living with vision loss. And there's some representation there, which I think is so important. And I can't wait to dive into that with him. We also have a fantastic career panel that's going to be happening, um, both the panel discussion and then some more intimate small group conversations Um, from the AMI family. Kevin Shaw will be there from Mind Your Own Business. Uh, He's one of our speakers. We also have sessions on advocacy, mindfulness, um, building a winning mindset. Uh, We're going to be having an accessible paint night on Saturday and a great dinner out. So lots of opportunities to network and to, have some really great conversation
0: what are the uh, points of contact for registration here and once again is it too late for somebody to get involved a few weeks out
5: uh no we're we can still accept a few people for sure um if you're local it's no problem if you're outside of toronto we can have a conversation and see what we can do because it is getting uh getting close uh but please reach out to us if you're interested and we'll see what we can do so uh for that the website is fightingblindness.ca uh, this time slash young leaders And again, that email is education at fightingblindness.ca or 416-360-4200.
0: Morgan, one last piece of business. You've been so generous with your time, but one last thing here, because the FBC is asking the public to cast their vote for Mm -hmm. Eye on the Cure. What are the details behind that uh, vote in the competition?
5: So Eye on the Cure, very cool uh Dragon's Den Shark Tank style competition for early Canadian, uh early career Canadian researchers, where they're coming to vie for coveted awards to help support their research. So just like uh, Dragon's Den, we've got three, I think three teams of researchers that will come present their ideas. And there will be a a series of voting, uh, and then they will uh, hopefully be victorious and get their funding for their project. So yes, uh, anyone can watch the event for free. It's going to be broadcast online on November 16th. Um, But if you'd like to vote uh, for the People's Choice Award, if you make a donation of $50 or more, you can cast your vote and have your voice heard about what project you think should be funded. And there is a great website at, uh, again, fightingblindness.ca slash FBC, Eye on the Cure. Uh, And you could also uh, email us info at fightingblindness.ca or call 1-800-461-3331 to sign up to cast your vote.
0: Never a dull moment around Fighting Blindness Canada. Morgan, thank you for uh, taking a little time to talk about some of the events on the horizon.
5: Thanks so much for having me, Dave, and I look forward to seeing you uh, October
0: 14th. Yeah, same here. Looking forward to hanging out in person a little bit. That's Morgan Inison. Morgan is the manager of education at Fighting Blindness Canada. For more information, as you heard a couple times there, fightingblindness.ca, fightingblindness.ca, or email info at fightingblindness.ca. Coming up after the break, there's conversations about how Arctic lakes have become one of the climate change battlegrounds. Lawrence Gunther will take a closer look at where they fit into the climate change puzzle. This is now with Dave Brown on MIT. Back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Lakes in Canada's tundra have locked up a huge load of carbon in their sediment over the years. The Arctic is becoming warmer and wetter. Scientists are concerned these lakes could be turning into sources of carbon. This could have enormous consequences for the world's climate. Lawrence Gunther wants to explore the possible impact Lawrence is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther on AMI Audio. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. Hi, Dave. Lawrence, I'm going to start right here. Why are warming Arctic lakes an issue?
6: you know, they've been locked up in ice for the m- most part. You know, it's their carbon sinks, right? They're just hanging on to a lot of carbon. But we've got, you know, warming temperatures. We've got shifting, uh, melting uh, seasons. We've got a- increased precipitation. This is all causing a lot of these lakes to become unlocked up in the Arctic. So, you know, normally... The lakes are sinks if they hang on to carbon. And that means the uh, the phytoplankton is creating their skeletons and they're eating up carbon dioxide to create those skeletons and they're releasing oxygen. They're a sink. But when they start to thaw out earlier and they're warming up faster, all that plant material that's been lying in those lakes, you know, frozen is starting to decompose. And that means bacteria is chewing up that Uh, plant material and releasing the co2 and eating oxygen so if it's too much eating oxygen and too much releasing carbon now they're carbon sources and that's what we're heading towards
0: what's the scale here what's the volume the number of lakes involved
6: yeah, it's it's quite impressive, Dave. There's um, they say you know, in between the boreal forest in Canada, which is the lo- longest, largest continuous forest in the world, and the lakes that are above the tree line into the uh, tundra in Canada's Arctic, and you know, into the Northwest Territories and all that. Half the uh, surface area of all the freshwater lakes in the world exist in this area, the boreal forest and the Arctic, half the freshwater surface area of all lakes right there. So about 3.5 million lakes, that's a lot of lakes, and it, and it, it accounts for just under 400, um, 400 million cubic, uh, for, sorry, 400 m- million square kilometers of, of surface
0: area. So, sticking with the numbers here, uh, maybe hopefully tangible or understandable numbers, mm-hmm. what does that actually mean? How big a role could these lakes play in the broader warming picture?
6: Well, we know, we don't know a ton of this, but we know they are uh, thawing out a week earlier and freezing on average about 11 days later. So that doesn't seem like a lot, right? Like, I mean, okay, so it's two weeks, two and a bit, two and a half weeks of open water, more than it used to be. But you times that by 3.5 million and half the surface area of all freshwater lakes in the world, that starts to add up, right? Then you factor into that, that these lakes are warming up twice as fast as the average lake in the world twice as fast as the average lake in the world so what does that mean we have no idea dave that's the problem right like to do this research you have to you know submerge carbon sensors into these lakes into the into these lakes under the ice and into the you know below the surface so you can monitor the carbon dioxide being uh, released by these microbes and the oxygen being released by the uh, phytoplanktons and measure that stuff, we're just starting that. We have no idea, really. So we've got to get on this if we're going to really understand what's going on there.
0: So it's a little bit speculative, but what are the mitigation procedures here? What is the research that's necessary? What needs to be done?
6: If If these lakes continue to thaw out at the rate they're thawing out, we know that the gases that they're releasing are actually speeding up the global warming. And by speeding up global warming, that means these lakes are going to thaw out every year sooner and freeze every year later. So the longer these lakes stay unfrozen, the more they become carbon sources and the more they're going to speed up global change and then the more these lakes are going to spew out carbon dioxide. So you can see here, it's sort of exponential increase. We've got to stop that. Like we've got to somehow... May You know, it sounds like a broken record here, Dave, but if we allow the temperatures to continue to rise around the globe, these lakes are going to exponentially increase, you know, temperature raising and, and create more and
0: more problems. Lawrence, what about your show outdoors with Lawrence Gunther? What's coming up on the next episode?
6: Well, right now we've got uh, our friend Ron Walsh from Outdoor Access talking about how he modifies his muzzle loaders so that he can hunt independently with a sighted guide. That's our tech. And and just, you know what his favorite UTVs are and uh, going and visiting Gray Owl's uh, cabin up in the uh, north of Saskatchewan. He's quite a he's quite the explorer. It was a lot of fun talking with him, so you can catch that now. And uh, starting Sunday, we're going to have uh, a conversation with um, the founder of Water Rangers. And Water Rangers is really uh, uh, working with youth across Canada to make them into, uh, you know, water testing little gurus, those sciences. So we're working with Water Rangers now, my charity, Bluefish Canada, to bring in a fish aspect to this and, and bring more accessibility to the program as well. So we'll be talking about
0: that. Very good. Lawrence, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. That's Lawrence Gunther, the host of Outdoors. You can find that show on AMI-audio every Sunday at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find Lawrence on Twitter, at Lawrence Gunther. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will share the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes.
7: Strength in energy stocks helped Canada's main stock index to a slight gain yesterday. Toronto's TSX index crept 20 points higher to close at 19,800. New York's Dow Jones average gained 43 points and the Nasdaq added 59. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index dropped 363 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning a little lower at 74.18 cents U.S. Canada's largest private sector union will open talks today. Today with General Motors. This comes after Unifor members voted to accept the union's new three-year labor agreement with Ford. And Trans Mountain's application to modify its pipeline's route has been approved by the Canada Energy Regulator. The decision spares the company a possible nine-month delay in construction by allowing it to slightly alter the route for a 1.3-kilometer stretch in the Jaco Lake area near Kamloops. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebeau.
0: Thank you very much, Karen. From business to weather, let's bring in Alex Smythe. Alex, a lot of folks uh, getting some weather warnings out on the coast of British Columbia.
2: Yeah, Dave. Uh, So this was something we first talked about last week on Friday, how the West Coast is really going to be experiencing a prolonged period of extreme and wet conditions. And so that's really came to a head yesterday and late Sunday as a bomb cyclone developed off the coast in uh, Vancouver Island and that whole region. And it really peaked on Monday. So uh, thankfully the conditions are set to kind of settle after that bomb cyclone. There's still a lot of precipitation in the forecast, but uh, along Vancouver Island, there were winds that peaked upwards of 161 kilometers per hour. And this is the deepest low pressure system on record for the month of September ever recorded and really what that means is when you have those extreme low pressures that's going to lead to far more precipitation far more of those extreme rain and storm conditions lots of thunder and lightning as well as that precipitation and as I said it did result in a bomb cyclone in the area bringing even more extreme conditions now the the just because the bomb cyclone has kind of settled and it's, it's going to dissipate that does not mean it's an end for the precipitation because there is still a lot of rain expected to continue this week over the next seven days because there is still that system of rain that is pushing in off of the Pacific uh, parts of the interior mainland. They could see upwards of 75 millimeters this week that increases up to 200 millimeters as we head into higher elevations towards the mountains. So needless to say, there's going to be a lot of rain, a lot of moisture in BC over the next week and over the next region, uh, throughout that region. And with those those heavy rains, heavy strong conditions, You have to be careful about things like falling trees, about high winds, flooding, and down power lines, which was something that uh, parts of Vancouver Island saw. So it's really important over this next little while with this extreme uh, conditions to be cautious out. On the West Coast.
0: Well, there's a couple of folks joining the show tomorrow. Arno Kopecki and Amy Amanti are both based in British Columbia, so perhaps they can give a uh, live update when uh, I get a chance to chat with them tomorrow morning. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, legal reform is part of the bigger truth and reconciliation picture. Kelly Brown Johnson will discuss Gladue reports and their role in acknowledging the effect of colonialism on Indigenous people. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. The National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is this Saturday. The day acknowledges historical injustice experienced by Indigenous people. It's also an opportunity to chart a path forward. Legal reform is part of the bigger reconciliation picture. Gladue Reports are one of those reforms. Gladue Reports are a court process that are meant to acknowledge the effects of colonialism on Indigenous people. Kelly Braun-Johnson has been working on Gladue Reports, and Kelly is the founder of Completely Inclusive. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Thank you for making the time this morning.
3: Hi, good morning, Dave. It's so important to talk about this.
0: Yeah, it really, really is. So, Kelly, let's start here with some of the broad strokes facts. What is the landscape when it comes to the experience of Indigenous people and the legal system?
3: So, despite the fact that Indigenous people make up only around 4% of the general Canadian population, they represent almost 30% of people incarcerated right now. Um, Indigenous men are eight times more likely to be incarcerated than white men. Um, And the next, just for comparison, the next overrepresented race are Blacks at 8%. So there's a huge, huge uh, percent gap, um, or percent change difference uh, between those two overrepresented populations. Um, And the fact that the number continues to grow is, is also scary.
0: Where does disability fit into this conversation? How might disability intersect to create a double marginalization for people?
3: So another overrepresentation issue that we have is roughly 14% of the prison population is neurodivergent. So we're just speaking specifically about neurodivergence in this case, um, when we make up only about 7% of the general population outside and the actually most common disability uh, within the prison system is dyslexia. So it's, it's kind of mind-blowing to me and, and it really shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone that when we don't support disabled people in the school system, when they are punished for so-called acting out or not succeeding, um, we shouldn't be surprised later on that we find these people ending up in the, in the prison system at some point. They've been used to being punished Um, And this is the beginning of the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, But let's also look back. We'll look at barriers to diagnosis when we're talking about specifically in the indigenous communities in very isolated areas or uh, reserves when they either do not receive a diagnosis um, or if they do get a diagnosis, then there are very few or often zero services um, to support them. So I would actually love to see some numbers. I would love to see the numbers of indigenous people uh, who are incarcerated um, and uh, who have a disability. We don't really track this right now.
0: Mm. Kelly, that's some of the relevant context about the experience of indigenous people and marginalized people with the legal system. What are some of the considerations that go into a GLADU report?
3: So a GLADU report is, is a court mandated report that are used to address this over representation of incarcerated indigenous people. And it's a way uh, to put into context the effects of colonialism on Indigenous people and their circumstances today. So the government and the Supreme Court are admitting that the actions that were taken by the government in the past, like residential schools, the Sixties Scoop, um, the C.D. Howe ship that was uh, that took people down for T.D. Uh, sorry T.B. tuberculosis treatment and then they never returned them, uh, the sled dog slaughter by the RCMP. Uh, forced relocations, forced sterilizations, research studies that were done on them without any consent, and there's more. I mean, I could go on, um, but all of those things are explored and how that affects the individual client that's in front of me and why uh, or what led to them ending up in the justice system. But we know that there is a connection between those two things, and so we're going to put that in context for the court to, to read and to understand the story of that person.
0: Knowing the overrepresentation that you referred to under the assumption that people are already in the carceral system, already in the prison system, how is that system failing people even once they're inside?
3: Well, I, I, I truly don't believe that prison helps anyone at all. Um, and that that might be for another show and another discussion. Uh, but when we're talking about Indigenous people specifically, we know it's a system that wasn't created for them. It was a created you know, it's a system that's created to to house them, but not to not to benefit anyone. Um, the laws and the the whole system is made in a way that doesn't fit their laws and their justice system. They already had their own systems of justice, and uh, our system is definitely not like that. Um, when they are incarcerated, they're not receiving any services or very few. Again. Uh, having a, a, a workshop once a year to uh, and light a candle and and say oh you know I forgive myself doesn't isn't really therapeutic um mm. and so they're not receiving services that are going to benefit them when they come out it's not they're not receiving services that are culturally appropriate and they're not receiving services in their native languages so um, all of that is is a barrier and inaccessible and and prison is just not a helpful or beneficial place for them
0: what are some of the underconsidered impacts of someone being removed from their community and sent to prison?
3: Well, we look at if we look at a very small community or small village, and I'm speaking from experience of the ones that i've I've personally been able to visit. these are villages of between two hundred and fifty and maximum two thousand, and even at two thousand we're kind of pushing it. Um, so when you think you when you have such a small community, your role and your actions and your place within that community are extremely important to everyone. Um, so, for example, really important job up north are the water truck drivers. Um, water is delivered uh, in northern communities by truck. There's no underground plumbing, obviously, because that would freeze. Um, and so water is delivered to each home every day and the sewage is taken away every day. Um, so if there's only a few drivers and you're one of them, and then you're sent to prison for nine, 12 months. Uh, during that time, that means that people, the people at home are suffering because they're not getting enough water. They're not getting it on time. You know, it, it's it's inconveniencing the whole community. Mm-hmm. And and one really serious example, and it's one that I worked on recently, um, where there was a community where there's only 10 volunteer firefighters. And mm-hmm. during a recent fire, only seven uh, firefighters were able to show up at the beginning of the fire and only one person was trained and able to go into the house to save someone. And so if we look at the loss of that one person, we need to prove to the court or show to court this is a it's dangerous for the community because how many people might die in a fire while this person is gone because we're down that one brave volunteer firefighter who could not go in. So we need to look at that. The cost needs to be weighed. It's not just about one person. It's how that person affects the whole life of the community.
0: Along those lines, what are some of the alternatives that are being proposed instead of just incarcerating people?
3: Right. So it's you know I always say it's not we're not asking uh have everybody to get a get out of jail free card. Um, The point is to create a plan and to help that person not reoffend. And so we look at things like culturally relevant therapies um, in their mother tongue, if possible. Um, Things like going out on the land and going hunting for the community can give them a better sense of purpose again uh, when they're providing for people. Volunteering or doing community service within the community can give them job skills and again, give them some meaning. Um, Alcohol and drug rehab programs where the whole family can attend and receive counseling together. Because they need to all heal together. When you have the whole family healing together and they're all supported, they're more likely. Uh, they're sorry. They're less likely to reoffend, and they're more likely to stay in the community and stay in a healthy community.
0: Kelly, why did you get involved in writing Gladue reports?
3: So. One of my one of my sons is Indigenous, and this is kind of the way that I feel that I can actively try to minimize harm and, and address some of this aspect of truth and reconciliation. I always look at my client and I think, if this person was my son, how would I want to be treated? Or how would I want him to be treated? And I would want someone to see my son for everything that he is, as a whole person, I want them to understand the circumstances, the trauma, the things that he's experienced that led to him that are not his fault, but they're a direct result of the choices that the Canadian government made and continue to make when we're talking about the treatment of indigenous people. I don't want somebody to just look at him as a crime or a mistake, he's not that. He's a full person with a full life and able to give so much. Um, And so that's how I I use that perspective whenever I'm looking at, a, at my client and trying to do the best for them.
0: Kelly, I can hear the emotion in your voice. And I know as I ask this question, the answer is probably quite obvious. How's the experience? I, I know a, a dear friend of mine in Ottawa worked for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for years and years and had a really tough time as he, as he went through it, uh, documenting people's stories. How is the experience for you?
3: So for me, as a writer, I'm I'm trying to get as much info as I can. I'm trying to document this story um, about often truly horrific and traumatizing events for this person and their family. Um, so it's it's emotionally intense for me as I'm I'm both documenting and I'm holding space for this experience. Um, but also, I don't want to focus on myself too much. Like I, I I have problems with this question in the sense that it's not about me. It's really right. not about me. Right. Um, but I, I do want to, like, at least acknowledge that, yes, um, self-care is important in this process for everyone involved. Uh, we do give support and recommendations for our clients after we've done interviewing them because it's obviously an extremely emotional time. Um, and for me, uh, you know, what I did to try and, and kind of wash it off me, get it out me, you know, I cry, of course. I don't I don't cry in front of my client, but I will go out and I will go and I'll, I'll have my own moment. Um on the, when I was up, I was up north, I could go out on the land. I went and I walked around. Uh, I walked by the water, I went alone. Um, you can go and scream into the abyss, nobody will hear you. Um, but to get that peace back to to,, um, find the calm again and, and find hope in all of this. Um, and I also think at the same time, it's okay to be angry. As long as I'm angry, that means I care. I'm going to keep channeling my anger into ways of fighting this injustice so it's it's to me it's a very complicated question um but everybody who's involved i think has to has to get it out has to deal with their own in their own way but we do also need to process that anger and take that anger and do something with it so that's what i will keep doing
8: yeah,
0: Kelly, I acknowledge that the question is unfair, and you're right. It's not simply about us. It's not about our own experiences. It's about the experiences that other people have gone through. But we do have a part to play in reconciliation. We we all do. We can't just simply cast that, that responsibility aside. So knowing, knowing, again, that this question is probably unfair as well, how are Gludu reports a piece of the broader process of reconciliation?
3: Well, I think that a lot of of what came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Report was about bringing that awareness and that validation to the injustices that happen. And I know apologies have been made. Um, There's been some acknowledgement, uh, often stopping short of using the words that I think we need to be using, but but (laughs) I'm not gonna belabor that point either. Um, I think the point is that we cannot change what we don't acknowledge and we need to acknowledge this overrepresentation of Indigenous people in prison and Indigenous children in care. Um, and so it's, you know, we need to acknowledge this is not by fluke. This is not, this did not happen as an accident, right? Um, these systems were purposely put in place to eliminate a whole group of people. And we will keep the system running exactly as it is unless we take action to dismantle it ourselves. Um, and so Gladue reports to me are a way that the, the courts are forced to acknowledge that the system is not working for anyone. And if we actually want a true and just society, we will not accept the status quo anymore.
0: Kelly, thank you for this. Thank you for your thoughts on such an uh, important topic. I appreciate your insight.
3: Thank you so much for acknowledging it and observing uh, Truth and Reconciliation Day.
0: Yes, and uh, just a programming note, next Monday is the day that uh, AMI and will be observing uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. So there will be no live show on Monday, October the 2nd, as uh, Truth and Reconciliation, the day, September 30th, is falling on a Saturday this year. That's Kelly Braun-Johnson, the founder of Completely Inclusive. Coming up after the break, we'll have more now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, September the 26th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Blue Pumpkin and Bucket campaign is aiming to make trick-or-treating more inclusive to children with disabilities. Rebecca Dingwell will tell you more and it's another edition of the weekly news quiz. Karen McGee, Amen Shikarchi and Alex Smythe will go tet a tete a tete head to head to head for news quiz supremacy. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in British Columbia, BC's Advocate for Seniors says fundamental reform is needed for how the province funds long-term care providers. A study found for-profit facilities routinely under delivered care for the funding they received. Records from 2021 and 2022 show that long-term care facilities operated by for-profit companies delivered 500000 fewer hours than they were funded for by the province in comparison facilities run by not-for-profits delivered 93,000 more care hours than what they were funded to provide Isabel McKenzie thinks there needs to be a lot of conversations about what care models are working
1: the funding formula that's applied is the same and this is the result from that funding formula, where we um, are rewarding, if you view profit as your reward, we are rewarding not spending on the care. That's where the big difference
0: is. Mackenzie feels there needs to be greater accountability.
1: That's why it's very important for us to ensure that these contracted long-term care beds, which are the majority of our publicly subsidized beds in British Columbia, that the money being spent in these facilities is being done in a way that provides the best possible care for the residents who live there and good value for the public who is paying for it.
0: And over to the prairies, city officials in Calgary say smelly and off-tasting tap water poses no threat and is only temporary. Water quality manager Mark Krautis says there are increased levels of geosmin in the Bow and Elbow Rivers. Geosmin is a naturally occurring bacteria. Geosmin levels typically rise by the end of summer into early fall. Crowdis says it's not something the city treats for because it is not toxic and safe to consume. I don't know, I kinda land with the residents on this one. If my water tastes funny and smells funky, I don't know if I really want to be drinking it or showering with it. I will also say this. When I'm in a city that just went through a giant E. coli outbreak in our daycare facilities, I'm at least going to ask a few questions. Not that I'm engaging in reckless speculation on the air. Not at all. Over to Ontario. Ontario's infrastructure minister is proposing a new way of funding Go Transit stations, Infrastructure Minister Kinga introduced legislation that would let municipalities fund the design and construction of new GO stations. Then they would recover the costs over time by levying a station contribution fee on development built around them. The fee is a proposed as a voluntary tool for municipalities, and they would apply to the province To use it, the province says municipalities would need to show a reduction in development costs to help offset the fee for developers, such as reduced parking requirements or faster approvals. So, in other words, that was a lot of words the province put out in a press release yesterday. Uh, We are downloading the costs of funding building GoTrain stations to the municipalities, and you can try to make it up from developers, except we're going to tell you whether or not you're allowed to charge the developers a fee. There you go. I put that in plain English for you as this province continues to play fast and loose with development, housing and transit. Not that I'm editorializing, not at all. Over to the Atlantic, the Halifax to Dartmouth Ferry service is operating at half its regular frequency. Halifax Transit says the cutback in service is due to maintenance issues instead of having service every 15 minutes. The frequency will go down to every half hour on weekdays for both the Woodside and Alderney ferries. That's your look at the regional news. In 60 seconds, Amanda Shikarchi will stop by with an entertainment report. But first, Microsoft Windows is getting a facelift. Mike Dubusky tells you how in Tech Trends.
2: Windows users will soon see an artificial intelligence tool called Copilot crop up on their computers. DC World's Mark Hockman says it's similar to how Microsoft integrated AI into its search engine,
0: Bing. You can go ahead and open your search box and type in anything you want to Bing Chat without the need to open a, a web browser.
2: And it can also control your computer's settings. You can have it switch to dark mode. You can have it take a screenshot. Copilot will also show up in Windows apps like Outlook, Edge. Even Microsoft Paint, Hockman says it comes after Microsoft put guardrails on its AI technology after some high-profile
0: missteps earlier this year. People got into some weird conversations with it, and Microsoft just pulled out all of the personality. So Windows Copilot is a very bland conversational search bot. With tech trends, I'm Mike Dubasky, ABC News. It's never bland on now with Dave Brown. That's why you can't replace me with Copilot. Let's bring in Amanda Shikarchi for an entertainment report. Amanda, more television shows having their uh, 20th anniversaries marked this month.
4: Thanks, yes. I'm really excited about this one. On September 23rd, 2003, One Tree Hill hit the airwaves. The show is about two estranged half-brothers, Nathan and Lucas Scott. Their passion for basketball brings them together in high school. 20 years later, the show is remembered for the cast, drama, and soundtrack. So, Dave, what does One Tree Hill mean to you? Uh,
0: when you say the cast, I would say probably the two people who've uh, sort of persisted. Is it Chad Michael Murray and Sophia Bush and probably even Sophia Bush being sort of like the real standout from the show? I, I would make that argument. Wouldn't you, Amanda?
4: I agree. I love Sophia Bush. And I think that like her character, Brooks character development is really what the driving force for me when it comes to watching the show
0: yeah you know what was interesting about the show it's that it was really about class struggle and it set it up in sort of a very familiar understandable family drama context here's one kid from one side of the tracks and one kid from the other side of the tracks whose parents uh deviated paths when, before they were born. And it was really about someone trying to emerge as an underdog versus someone who kind of had everything handed to him. The one thing, Amanda, is I felt as the show moved along, it stopped wanting to have good guys and bad guys, and just everybody was a good guy, everybody was good. So by the time you got to the second and third season, they didn't want to have any bad characters anymore, and therefore a lot of the drama got lost.
4: Yeah, I totally agree. However, what we did start to see later in the show is kind of the deeper kind of storylines emerging, going more than just your high school drama. You had, you know, the issue for Dave, one of the hardest episodes for me to watch was the school shooting Mm -hmm. in season Mm -hmm. three. Yeah,
0: it it didn't shy away from real, real world issues. That's for sure.
4: Yeah, I totally agree with that. So there's a new generation of watching one that are watching One Tree Hill. Why is this show still relevant now?
0: I mean, I don't know if it's still relevant, but it's easy to watch on Amazon Prime. So by the time you're done watching The Summer I Turned Pretty and now they've taken the OC off Amazon Prime, you know, you got to get some teen drama coming from somewhere. I would say that if you were trying to trace a little bit of music history in the aughts, in the mid-aughts, especially from sort of the, let's call it quasi-indie rock world, you would find a lot of that through the lens of One Tree Hill. You have to remember it was a Warner Brothers show and platformed a lot of emerging Warner Brothers uh, music artists. So it was pretty cool the way they handled that to basically use the show as a teen drama, but also a launching pad for their artists inside the WB family.
4: I totally agree. I loved how music played a role in this show, especially I really enjoyed when they would do those scenes where they had the concerts and they'd have like different artists performing i thought that was really cool to see and i loved also how some of the cast like tyler hilton and then later kate vocal were actually musicians themselves
0: amanda you pressed play on this earlier this year so i'll leave the final question to you why did you press play why do you think the show is still relevant
4: i think the show is still relevant because as i mentioned earlier the the conflicts and storylines that they deal with are very much still going on today but also it was a source of comfort and entertainment for me and there was definitely those nice warm moments and I really enjoyed the the drama and the unique storylines too that presented themselves later in in the seasons like you know the nanny carrie storyline and all those ones too
0: yeah that's going too deep for me i didn't follow after the time jump i i went till the time jump and that was it once they flash forwarded five years i said i'm out I i got what i needed from this show you can find one tree hill on amazon prime and you can find amanda as part of the news quiz a little bit later in the show you can also find brock richardson at the ami sports desk Let's chat about sports. There was a doubleheader on Monday night football, and uh, the first game proved what I think we already knew. The Philadelphia Eagles are for real, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are maybe better than expected, but not quite
8: up to snuff with the Uggles. And you know what else it proved? It also proved why we need to have two games on Monday night, because it got out of hand rather quickly, and then it kind of came back a little bit. Uh, yeah, the Philadelphia Eagles really uh, played well last night. I would say that wide receiver AJ Brown had a really good game last night, having over 100 yards in receiving. That's always good. Didn't really dawn on me, Dave, that Baker Mayfield played for the Buccaneers until it was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about him being there now. Yeah, you know, you for, kind of... former number former number
0: one pick baker make who uh, got ran out of cleveland's got bounced around the league a little bit last year and landed in tampa and won the uh, off-season quarterback battle to replace tom brady
8: yeah and i mean those are some tough shoes to fill when you gotta replace uh tom brady and what he comes with so that was kind of interesting. Uh, as for the other game. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got a thought, I got a thought on the, the okay. Philadelphia-Tampa um, game.
0: The thing that is very clear is, although there was a lot of changeover on the Philadelphia defense in the offseason, this is still an elite, elite unit. They can shut down elite players at any position. It's a testament to how well they've drafted the last couple of years, with just good young players emerging all across that defense, with speed and size all over the field. The other side of it, Brock, is on the offensive side of the field. Yes, A.J. Brown, from a receiving point of view, was great catching the ball last night, but it's two weeks in a row now. You've seen the Philadelphia Eagles absolutely maul teams in the trenches with their running game, and that's going to be something that's going to continue to pay huge dividends for them as the season moves on. So Philadelphia Eagles win that game 25-11. The late game, Brock, ended up being a final score of 19-16, Cincinnati Bengals over the L.A. Rams, But the game was not that
8: close, and it definitely was not that pretty. No, it really wasn't that close. Sometimes we talk about the score not not being indicative of the game, and this is the case. I think Cincinnati played better than what the score uh, allowed for. I would also say that Joe Burrow making his return from his injury, that proved to be really well. I do think, and if memory serves me correctly, you said that, LA was on your disappointed list. I can see why. Uh, I was disappointed yesterday in what I saw. And I think there's some really big question marks coming to be in in LA and what's going to be coming. Because what I saw last night was just not good, not clean, not concise. Not what they expect over there in LA when all their sports teams in their heads should be doing better than what they are
0: yeah they knew this was going to be something of a rebuilding year going into it and they got that scrappy win in week one over the seattle seahawks they stayed in the game against the san francisco 49ers last week and they stayed in the game against cincinnati last night but again it's a little bit deceiving because a lot of the scoring they're doing is coming late in the game so they're going to be competitive throughout the year because they are well coached but i don't think they're actually a good football team and i'm not all the way convinced by what Cincinnati did last night, either. They had had their moments, they had their flashes, but something with that offense still is not working despite all the star potential. I don't know if it's the calf strain for their star quarterback, Joe Burrow, but he has looked very inconsistent throughout the year, and calf strains are uh, no joke. They hurt for a long time, so hopefully he gets on the mend sometime soon. Hey, Brock, I know you keep wanting to talk about athletes uh, resting before the playoffs, but I keep running out of time on you. I promise we'll get to it tomorrow have a great day my friends no problem at all always
8: happy to push a topic down the
0: line just keep pushing it down the line keep filling up that content that's Brock Richardson he is at the AMI sports desk coming up after the break the Blue Pumpkin and Bucket campaign is aiming to make trick or treating more inclusive to children with disabilities Rebecca Dingwell will tell you more this is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv Halloween. Still a few weeks away. Doesn't matter because capitalism has the stores filled with costumes and candy already. I'm not saying I haven't bought some of that candy and eaten it over the sink like a rat. But nonetheless, you're also seeing pumpkins popping up at outdoor vendors in the grocery stores as well. Most Doorsteps are going to have your traditional orange pumpkin, but there's a growing number of pumpkins that are painted blue. What do those blue pumpkins represent? Rebecca Jingwell Dingwell is a journalist who can tell you a little bit more about the significance of the blue pumpkin campaign. And hey, good morning, Rebecca. Hi. So, Rebecca, what is behind the blue pumpkin and blue bucket campaign?
9: Yeah, so it's interesting. It's one of those things where I, when I researched it, I couldn't find a definite origin for it. My theory is that it was maybe either started by or inspired by the organization Autism Speaks because they have the whole light up blue campaign that they do every year. Um, and I suspect maybe they started it or perhaps a parent was inspired by that. Um, So the blue pumpkin on the doorstep indicates that I think either that there is an autistic child living in that home, or it's a quote unquote autism friendly household um, that if they're handing out candy to your kid, they're going to be understanding if the kid maybe doesn't speak, isn't wearing a costume, et cetera. So I think that that's the idea. Um, The blue bucket conversely is Something that an autistic child might carry around while they go trick-or-treating to sort of flag that um, maybe they are are nonverbal or if they don't uh, present it a way that you think a kid should present on, on Halloween, uh, that might be a reason as to why.
0: It seems as though there's more organizations and initiatives that are considering the Halloween experience of children, but also of people giving out candy as well. So blue pumpkins aren't the only uh, different colored pumpkins people might find in their neighborhood. There's also folks who are popping out uh, teal pumpkins. So what are some of the different significances here that uh, might lead to some confusion?
9: Yeah, so this is one of a few problems potentially with the blue pumpkin campaign, and that is the the teal pumpkins, which if I'm not mistaken, um, may have actually come first, but the teal pumpkin signifies that um, a child might have a severe allergy. Um, So that's the idea. But teal and blue Are uh, you know they're very close together. A teal might be a little bit more green leaning, if you will, but especially in the dark um, on Halloween night, you're probably not going to be able to to tell the difference. Mm. So that's where some confusion and some potential problems might come up.
0: Rebecca, I think from the pumpkin perspective, I can really. Get where that's a valuable, valuable thing to let people know, hey, we're trying to be an inclusive household here. We want your kid to come enjoy Halloween with us. But what are some of the issues maybe on the bucket side of this? And hey, listen, I'm willing to let you push back on me and even saying that maybe the blue pumpkin or the teal pumpkins at the house themselves are also not a good thing.
9: Yeah, so it's complicated. I I definitely can understand the instincts to maybe buy a, a blue pumpkin for yourself or, or for your child, because if it's probably exhausting if you feel like you have to explain yourself to people while you're just trying to take your kid on this rite of passage and take them out trick-or-treating. But I think this kind of ties back to what we spoke about um, earlier this month when I was talking about kids' right to privacy, and effectively, even though I know this isn't the uh, intention, effectively what you're doing is you're putting a big neon sign on on your kids saying, I am autistic, and that's not really fair to them when they haven't necessarily agreed to disclose that, and further, um, I, I don't think that especially strangers are entitled to that information, And um, I think this might make me sound like I'm somebody who listens to too many true crime podcasts, but I think one could argue um, about the doorstep pumpkin that you you might be flagging to uh, maybe not so nice people that there is potentially a a vulnerable child in this household. So Mm. um, if you think about it that way, then that could also be problematic. That might be a bit of a stretch, but it's just something to consider when um, you're, you're thinking about these things and maybe um, thinking about uh, taking advantage of these campaigns.
0: A friend of mine, uh, Stephanie Swinburne, runs a company in Montreal called Kiddo Active Therapy, which serves uh, the needs of families and children who are neurodivergent or on the spectrum. And she had this great post on Facebook a couple of years ago, just talking about good behaviors that we can have as adults to make kids feel more included on Halloween. And I ended up sharing it. And then one of my friends wrote back, now he's a little bit of a troll, but every now and then he finds a kernel of truth. He wrote back, you know, Dave, there's a much simpler way to put this, which just says... How about we just don't judge children? How about if a kid doesn't say trick-or-treat? We just don't yell at kids for being kids. And I think, Rebecca, that's what this boils down to. We want people to be better, but sometimes you've got to give them a little bit of this coaching and understanding. But it's also pretty unfair to put the onus of self-identification on a child when all you want people to do is not judge children.
9: Yeah, exactly. And I, I kind of put it in a way that is maybe a, a little bit harsher, but it's sort of like, mind your business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like if, um, if, you know, if you want to participate in Halloween by giving out candy, then give out candy and be nice to the kids or, you know, potentially older folks, you know, um, don't judge just give out candy. And if you don't wanna participate, turn your porch light off or go out for the night. It's really that simple. Um, And we could maybe put all this energy that we're putting into um, educating people about these pumpkin campaigns and sort of switch it up and maybe instead educate people about, okay, here are the reasons why uh, a kid might not be wearing a costume, an older kid might be at your door. A kid may not speak. and just kind of put that out in the world and remind people to be kind I- instead of kind of doing this whole colored pumpkin thing, which I feel like kind of like how you said it at the, at the start of the segment. I feel like it's also kind of a um, an avenue of capitalism, like an, another thing you you maybe have to buy <laughs> when it's. Just, it's
0: just not really necessary yeah just one more piece of plastic one more piece of plastic uh, Rebecca there are organizations uh, there's one based in Ontario called treat accessibly which offers a lot of insight on little things you can do to make the Halloween experience more inclusive for people uh, some some things are sensory friendly saying hey you don't have huge ghosts and ghouls that pop out of the grass as kids are walking up the pathway in some cases I think about wheelchair accessibility uh, so they might say hey if you have a driveway put your table Able to hand out candy at the end of the driveway don't put stairs in between what are some of the things that come to mind for you about making halloween perhaps a little bit more inclusive for people uh for children who are supposed to enjoy the day
9: yeah i think it's hard because there are there are sometimes conflicting access needs and there are so many potential things to consider um and i think that it's a balance. You want to, you probably want to decorate a little bit. You want it to be fun, but um, yeah, just maybe keep in mind that there, you don't need to turn the scary music up blast perhaps or you know you uh, you might want to temper some of your more uh <laughs> more ghostly elements maybe for later in the night where perhaps there are some some older kids who are a little who have a little bit more experience with the whole halloween thing um so it, it's hard i i personally um last year was my first year giving out halloween candy in a long time because i've, I've lived in apartments all my adult life um and we decided to do full-size chocolate bars so that's how oh, i yeah. that's oh, how yeah. i decided to make, <laughs> that's how i decided to make um, a halloween special for us in our household and i i think or did get around the neighborhood so we're gonna have to buy more <laughs> we're gonna have to make sure we have more this year what, what's
0: what's your general vibe on halloween I, I i waver a little bit i'm not the biggest costume person in the world but i do like sugar
9: yeah, so I I love Halloween. I feel like it, it, you know, when you get older the magic does um fade a little bit, but I love the fall and it was there was just something I don't know. There was something that was really magical to me about handing out candy um, last year, especially not having done it in a long time. And, and you know, kids walking away and sit excited, like, I got a big animal bar. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just, it's really cute. And yeah, I like to, even if I don't like fully dress up, it can be nice to have an excuse to wear black lipstick or, um, you know, an on-themed dress or jumpsuit or whatever um it's just it's supposed to be fun and i think that's what we need to remember uh about it um how can we make it fun for ourselves and how can we make sure it, it's fun for other people and that as much people as possible and that might you know what you can do about that might vary from household to household but it's just something to think about as you you know prepare for, for the day or
0: prepare for the night I do like it when people dress up their pets. My friend in Seattle a couple of years ago uh, wore a cow costume, and she had a white and black uh, Great Dane, so they were a bunch of cows together handing out candy out the front on the front door. Or my friend wrapped up their pug in uh, aluminum foil, so their pug was a baked potato for Halloween, so I liked that one too.
9: Yeah, um, yeah. The the pet thing is really cute. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, our, our dog who, who passed away earlier this year, he didn't really tolerate, um, did not tolerate much, especially not on the costume front. But um, I'm kind of <laughs> curious. We had we got our dog this year a themed scarf. Our new dog, but um, who who knows? Maybe maybe down the road we'll see. Um, I, I like I, I have a greyhound, so I, I like seeing people often dress them up as like greyhound buses. Oh my gosh! Um, so that's a good one. <laughs> But, um, if, if I think of something, if I think of something more original, then I'll,
0: I'll totally do it. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna check in with you next time we talk about this one where that evolution goes. Rebecca, thank you for this. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Yeah,
9: you too.
0: That's Rebecca Dingwell, a journalist based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Coming up after the break, Alex Smythe has a question for the Round table. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think it happens to me more often than I'd like to express. So we'll see what kind of honesty and vulnerability I'm willing to share after the break on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Alex Smythe, you have a question for myself, Nazreen, and Ramya that speaks right to my liberal arts education.
2: Yeah, Dave, same with me. There's a viral trend, meme, however you want to describe it, going on right now on TikTok where women are asking the men in their lives how often they think about the Roman Empire. Now it seems very silly, very out of nowhere, but it's gotten a lot of attention over the past few weeks and the results so far seem to be overwhelmingly that men have ancient Rome on their minds pretty much all the time. Uh, So I I wanted to bring this uh, conversation, this topic, this trend to the round table, kind of get everyone's perspective, see if you've found out if you've you've heard about this meme and and how often we are all thinking about ancient Rome. So Nusrine, let's start with you. How often are you thinking about the Roman Empire?
10: I really don't. I have to be honest with you. The only empire that I think about is that musical show Empire. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the only empire I'm thinking about during the day. Uh, so that's that. that's it for me.
0: First season of that show is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love the first season of that show. The music is so catchy. Uh, Ramya, how often do you find yourself thinking about the Roman Empire?
11: I don't. And I I feel like I learned more about the Roman Empire, watching this trend and watching people's reactions to the question than I've ever known in my life. But it was super funny, Alex, because just over this weekend, I went on a binge of um, men's reactions, like husbands, sons, Mm -hmm. brothers, reactions to the question. And the way like the automatic response of people just going yeah i think about it like seven eight times a day and then going that's
0: too details, much that's too much no, that's seriously, too much Rome.
11: you've got well maybe but maybe not for some people it's just it sounds like it's a casual thought you know like the way that i the how often i think of eating chocolate or something I don't oh
0: know. hold on rumia hold don't jump too far ahead in this <laughs> oh, sorry. conversation sorry. i do <laughs> i do have follow-up questions here rumia is there any empire you find yourself thinking about on the regular
11: no. And in fact, I I think like maybe when we're watching TV shows like the Game of Thrones is when I think of anything like the, the lifestyle or the timeline or the fantasy of or whatever. But historically or logistically,
0: no. So no no one's thinking about Napoleon or Chandragupta or the Tamil kings. Like, nobody's thinking about the Ming (laughs) dynasty. I mean, come on, there's (laughs) got to be some empire we're thinking about here from time to time. Uh, Alex, I do think about the Roman Empire, maybe not every day, but frequently enough. I mean, the Roman Empire in Rome had running water. I just had a story Mm -hmm. earlier this hour where the city of Calgary (laughs) has chemicals and foul-tasting odors with their drinking water. In the cities, so I think the Romans at least deserve a little bit credit two thousand years later for having running water and aqueducts in their cities. Like that's worth thinking about from time to time, isn't it?
2: Oh, absolutely, Dave. And, and so I was—full uh, disclosure—I was asked this question uh, two nights ago uh, by my girlfriend because she was she told me all about this meme, and I was like, oh yeah, probably about three times a week. You know, and, and it's just like, as Cass was just like, what what are you thinking about? And and I mentioned running the aqueducts. Water. Running water, man. I mentioned the aqueducts. It still blows my mind just how they developed and the fact that you still have aqueducts standing. You know, you still have the remnants of these Roman ruins, the, the impact of having roads that lead to central cities. The fact you have well-regulated uh, and constructed militias and armies and just having control over vast land masses like I think about it all the time and even it's like the tangent uh, uh kind of uh, connective tissue from different media like I'm watching the Winter King on on Crave well that's all based on a timeline right after the Romans kind of leave Great Britain it's like, well, I'm still thinking about the Romans because they left and this is a power vacuum that's been created. It's, it's on my it's on my mind quite a bit, There.
0: Oh, man, there's a German TV show on Netflix called Barbarian. It's so good. Mm. It's so good. It's about a Roman legionnaire who has barbarian a heritage and uh, them trying to conquer Germany. It's like so nerdy, but it's so good. I love it so much because I'm a total lame Alex, I would say if I find myself thinking about an ancient empire more than the Romans, though, it's the Greeks. It's because mm-hmm. the ancient Greeks believed the great virtue is moderation, and that is a virtue that I have trouble uh, keeping (laughs) control of on the day-to-day. So I would say I think about the ancient Greeks a little more frequently than I find myself thinking about the ancient Romans, but running water, that's got to count for something. Okay, Alex, you you and I better be very careful here with this next question. Very, very careful, because I don't want to put any opinions forward. I don't want to get (laughs) cancelled. Nazreen, what is the equivalent the other way around? What is the question men should be asking women about what they think about, how often they think about something.
10: Ooh. Okay, I'm gonna have to think about that. Uh, skip me for a second.
0: Okay, we got to skip Nazarene for a second. Nazarene's trying to get me canceled. I really appreciate it, <laughs> Rumia, I Again, I'm not. I, I don't. I'm not asking any leading questions here. What's the flip side of this? What is the question that men should be asking women about what they think about or how often they think about it?
8: Uh,
11: I my. I'm a little bit nervous that my responses might get me. Canceled. Yeah, yeah, but you yeah, but no, but women aren't going to cancel you. You're one oh, of the. We're own. not going to cancel. Okay, all right, oh, okay. Um, but no, I think that. Do you know the? Um, I'm sorry. There's a lot of construction in my area, so I don't know if you hear this right now. But do you do you guys know about the uh method where we're checking? I can't remember the name of it right now. Where we check in film or in any kind of uh art or media how often women think about or talk about oh. men. It's the um,
2: Lipstick oh,
0: test yeah. or something
11: like that. Do you know what I'm talking
0: yeah, Be- about? Yeah, the it's the conversation. Be- the Be- the Bechtel test. Thank yes, you. The I, think that was, test. I think that was Eliza okay. Rocco who was in my ear with that one. Was that Eliza? Yeah,
11: Stacy was in my ear. So okay. <laughs> the Bechtel test is one of the kind of things that really got me curious and I went on this insane rabbit hole uh, around Barbie when Barbie came out because uh, it talks about you know women thinking about men and how problematic that is or talking about men or just like the three prongs of the test which is um to pass the test you need to have two women in a room who are not talking about men essentially right and so i think that this is not the question that men should be asking women like how often do you think about or talk about men but just the this trend alone the roman empire thing is this curiosity sparking around that uh concept of like how often are we curious about what men are up to and what men are uh thinking about and also i had a follow-up question for you alex and dave because you've both now um fully immerse yourself in this trend of thinking about the roman empire what is it initially is there like a point in time when the roman empire became part of your awareness that it became the thing that you think about in various contexts to then loop back daily life back to the roman empire or for you dave with greeks Uh, because i'm so curious about that and nobody's really talked about it on the tiktok trend
0: alex grade eight or grade 10 history class for me i think
2: Uh, So for me, it would probably even be a bit earlier because I was very much always a history nerd, like my parents basically raised me in the science center and the ROM and, and all those different museums. So I was exposed to history very early and I was always fascinated by it. So even younger for me, but yeah, like I I originally went to university for history, so it's been like a long-standing kind of trend and in, in, uh, part of my life to, to really get nerdy about history. So uh, oh. as far back as I can remember, really, probably first exposure around grade five, grade six to the Romans and the Greeks and the antiquities.
0: And then Gladiator comes out, and uh, now everyone everyone loves the Romans. Or you go back and you watch Spartacus, which uh, really shows its age about 55 years later. Okay, Nazreen, I'm coming back to you on this one, and I'm going to get myself canceled by asking you this question. Nazreen, how often do you think about the Kardashians?
10: Oh, my God none like not oh that's a total lie
0: to me you've told you've talked about the kardashians before okay i
10: i spoke about the kardashians it doesn't mean i think about them all the time Uh, Um,
0: the the brain thinks and the mouth moves
10: i've never watched their show ever like i've watched clips on instagram on tiktok where they come out you know like and even some people mock them which was which is absolutely hilarious some people are on point uh, but no, I actually don't think about the Kardashians. I think about how rich they Maybe are Beyonce.
0: sometimes. And Nasreen, how often do you think about Beyonce? Mm, once every two weeks. Okay. Well, that, that's not, that's not the, 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 wow. wow. Okay. The, no. Twice
10: a week. Okay. I don't want to <laughs> keep going.
0: The, queen, <laughs> the, the queen, the queen, the queen, <laughs> Bay no, Empire. Stop there. Okay. Nisreen. So do you have an answer? What is the, what is the equivalent here? What is the equivalent of a question that men should be asking women on social media? How often they think about blank.
10: I tried to think about one. I tried to think about one, but I feel like either way it's, it's just not going to work. It's not equivalent to the Roman
0: empire question. Okay. All right. Fair. You know what? Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm nobody go- wants to get canceled. Nobody wants to get canceled <laughs> yeah, today. Wants to. <laughs> we just leave Dave dangling out here Dave, every day to be I'll, kicked in the I'll face. Help you. Exactly. I'll one. Okay, Alex, let's let's get, let's get you canceled.
2: Sure. So, um, and it's, an extension of this Roman Empire talk, like a uh, part of the conversation I had with my girlfriend, she then started talking about why guys are so just interested in war and war movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the conversation unfolded to the fact that, well, men were always the ones who would typically go off and have to fight in the wars and be mm-hmm. more represented on the front lines. So that kind of got me thinking too. And then we started talking a bit about just women's infatuation on things like murder mysteries. And as part of, well, mm-hmm. the women Ooh. typically were more oh, the target, so they were the more the likely to be the victims of mass murders and things like that. So I think it's, it's oh, the relationship. So I would say maybe how often do you think about uh, true crime, murders, like serial killers in that whole spectrum?
10: Every day. Yep. day, I'll answer that for you. Every perfect day, Alex, sleep. that was, that was mm. actually perfect. This is perfect. That is the equivalent. I would say, for me, every day. That's what I think about.
0: Alex cracked the code. Alex has figured out women. <laughs> well done by you. Alex, this <laughs> is oh, Naz- no. Uh, You guys take it easy. Alex will be back in the next segment as part of the uh, weekly news quiz. Uh, Rumya you are hosting Kelly and Ramya, which hits the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. What's coming up on the show today?
11: Okay, we have nutritionist Julia Carantis joining us talking about how we can make our soups and stews more hearty and healthy. This means we're getting into that warm uh, warming foods for cold weather convos. And I'm really excited. I'm assuming
0: the answer is not elbow macaroni.
11: Oh, well, maybe as part of the hearty. I don't know. We're also speaking, we're going to revisit with Brenda Gunn. Um, she's the academic and research director at the Sen- National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. So obviously the day is coming up September 30th, and we want to talk about what kinds of... Um, educational resources and conversations they want to bring up this time of year. And we also have our book club. So Amer Reviews Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, and uh, he recommended it to us. we all have been reading it. We're getting through it slowly. It's very philosophical uh, about the existence of mankind. I don't know Ooh. if the Roman Empire will come up, but it is uh, an interesting one, Dave, so I can't wait to review it later. The
0: Romans did spend some time talking about that. Philosophers were definitely interested in the Existence of man and where it came from. So that's a good one, rumya rumya thank you for indulging the weirdness on this show every morning. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. This was fun Talk tomorrow. That is rumya I'm with them, the co-host of Kelly and rumya That show hits the airwaves on AMI TV at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up after the break, it's the weekly news quiz. Karen McGee, Amanda Shikarchi, and Alex Smythe will compete for news quiz supremacy. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. It's Tuesday. The show is nearing its end. That means you get the weekly news quiz. That's right. The Tuesday edition of the weekly news quiz means that you get to hear from the co-host of the show, Alex Smythe. Hello once again, Alex. Hello again, Dave. Amanda Shikarchi. Joins in the conversation again. Hello, Amanda.
10: Hi, Dave.
0: And saying hello for the first time this morning to Karen McGee. Hello, Karen. Good morning, everyone. You've all played this game before, but there might be someone in the listener land and viewer vortex who's never played along with the weekly news quiz. So here are the rules there are three questions per round. With three rounds of questions. Each question comes with three multiple choice options. If you answer the question without hearing the options, you get two points. If you answer it with the options, you get one. If you get it wrong, we move on until the point is awarded. The order of contestants was drawn by producer Paul Daniel. The order will be Alex, Karen, and Amanda. Starting in the world of international news, Alex, Last week, which country freed five Americans it had detained on spying charges in exchange for access to 6 billion dollars?
2: I have no idea Dave, I'll need the options
0: please. Is it Iraq, Afghanistan, or Iran? I'm going to go with Iran. That is correct. The deal follows two years of high-stakes negotiations. So, Alex, with one point on the board, putting the pressure on Karen McGee with question number two. Karen, Japan has the world's oldest population. According to the United Nations, Italy's population is the second oldest. Which country ranks third? Oh, that's a great question. I'll take the choices, please. Is it Norway, Finland, or Sweden?
1: I figured it was Scandinavian and that did not narrow it down in the least.
0: Um, Sweden. That is incorrect. Oh. Amanda, is it Norway or Finland? Norway? that is incorrect. Oh. Alex picks up the default point. Finland has a population that is 23.6% aged 65 or older. Okay, Alex off to a commanding lead here, but Amanda's got a got an opportunity to fire right back. French President Emmanuel Macron welcomed King Charles to France last week. The president gave the king a tree from Versailles and a gl- golden medallion to mark the occasion. In return, the king gave a book by which French author?
4: I'll take the options, please.
0: Is it Victor Hugo, Voltaire, or Simon de Beauvoir? Voltaire? That is correct. The king's gift was a special edition of Lettres sur les Anglais, published in 1733. That translates to Letters of the English or letters on the English, by uh, Voltaire. So there you go. One point for Amanda. So heading into round number two, Alex has two points, Amanda has one. Karen is sitting on the big goose egg. But Karen gets the first opportunity with these round two questions related to sports. Karen, kicker, Maya Turner had a day to remember on Saturday when she became the first woman to play and score in a regular season Canadian youth sports football game. She capped it off by kicking a game-winning field goal to lead her school past the University of Regina. What university does Maya Turner play for?
1: Oh, I'll take the choices, please.
0: Is it the University of Manitoba, the University of Saskatchewan, or the University of Calgary?
1: I'll say Saskatchewan.
0: That is incorrect, <gasps> Amanda. Was it the University of Manitoba or the University of Calgary? Manitoba? That is correct, one point for Amanda with the game tied 24-24 in overtime. Turner kicked a field goal from 21 yards to give Manitoba the lead and eventually the win. So Amanda just tied things up with Alex. two. and with an opportunity here to take the lead. Staying in the world of college football, this time going to American college football, on Saturday, Haley Von Vujic became the first woman to appear in an NCAA football game at a position other than kicker. Her team is the Shenandoah University Hornets. What position did she play? What position did she play?
4: Can I take the options, please?
0: Is it linebacker, safety, or cornerback? Quarterback? That is incorrect. Alex Smythe, was it linebacker or safety? I'm gonna go with safety. That is correct, one point for Alex Smythe. Back- in the lead with three to amanda's two and karen's goose egg and alex has the first opportunity for question number three of round number two nhl defenseman nikita zadorov became the first russian player to speak out against the country's invasion of ukraine what nhl team what canadian nhl team does zadorov play for Ooh, um, Can I get the options, please, Dave? Is it the Vancouver Canucks, the Ottawa Senators, or the Calgary Flames? I'm going to go with Ottawa. That is incorrect. Karen, was it the Canucks or the Flames?
1: I'm going to say the Flames.
0: That is correct. One point for Karen McGee off the snide. Zadorov told reporters in Calgary that he cannot return to Russia as long as Vladimir Putin is president and that his parents in Russia do not share... His views, probably an important qualification in case they have windows on their house. So after two rounds of play, we've got Alex with three, Amanda with two, Karen with one. Anyone's game going into round number three. And Amanda, you get the first crack at this question. Which singer has filed for divorce after her two-year marriage to real estate agent Dalton Gomez?
4: Oh, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with this, so I'm actually going to take the options.
0: Is it Adele, Ariana Grande, or Cardi B?
4: Oh, I think it's Ariana Grande. That is
0: correct. One point for Amanda Shikarchi, tying Alex up at three points. Of course, Grande had previously been engaged to Pete Davidson, who's a very handsome, slender man. Alex. Big question for you here with a chance to take the lead. Epic Games agreed to pay $245 million in refunds to 37 million players of a specific game if they were charged for items they did not want between January 2017 and September of 2022. What game is it? Fortnite, Dave. That is two points for Alex Smythe. Getting up to that commanding five three one lead. Epic Games agreed last December to pay a total of $520 million in settlements. So, Karim, this is mostly just for fun at this point. It looks like Alex has this thing under control unless he do some chicanery. But let's see what happens here. Jan Wenner was removed from his position at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after he said that black and female musicians were not articulate enough to be featured in his book. What magazine did Wenner co-found? Rolling Stone. That is two points for Karen McGee. Winner was a co-founder and longtime editor of Rolling Stone. He made the comments in an interview with the New York Times, which were published last week. The Hall of Fame's board removed him soon after. With that, although Amanda and Karen gave it a good effort, the winner is... Big win, big win by Alex Smythe. Well done, sir. Thank you very much, Dave. I was just
2: fortunate to get the gaming question right at the end to seal the wind.
0: Not to take the texts that I get off the air onto the air, but Karen McGee, how often do you think about the Roman empire?
1: More than apparently I should be. (laughs) I had an excellent ancient history teacher though, in high school, Miss Gibb, and that made all the difference in the world. I was lucky enough to go to Rome. I stood in the Colosseum and bawled just thinking of all the history that was there. Like it still gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Um, Like, I love disputing all these facts that people think they have. Like, Nero did not play the fiddle of Rome Burned. Fiddles weren't invented yet, people. <laughs> and, like, that did not happen. And, like, Caligula did make his horse a senator. How did that even work? Where did where'd the horse sit? Like, I have so many questions.
0: Uh, My concern is not where the horse would sit in the Senate. I'm concerned if you added some extra letters to that word in the Senate. Although, based on the way American politicians behave, they kind of do that on the Senate floor uh, every day anyway. They do it certainly on top of the Constitution. Not to be too political about these things. Amanda, (laughs) there is 90 seconds left on the clock. How often do you think about the Roman Empire?
4: I guess much more since I was in Italy this summer because I've kind of learned to kind of really appreciate the history.
0: Ah, uh, you see, this is why traveling is an important thing, because it changes your perspective. There's this line in Goodwill Hunting where Robin Williams is talking to Matt Damon about the Sistine Chapel and says, you can read all the books and tell me all the facts about the Sistine Chapel that you've pulled from literature, but you'll never be able to tell me what it's like to breathe the air. And to borrow more Robin Williams quotes, sometimes you have to walk paths of great people before you i paraphrased because you know dead poet society was a little bit too gendered for a modern audience karen amanda alex have a great day that's all the time there is for the show today don't worry things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m eastern time a little bit later in the show jenny bovard stops by to talk about her favorite fall drinks That's now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown, reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.